This morning we're going to be studying the book of Acts. So please open your Bibles, find your way into the New Testament, and find your way to the book of Acts. Before I get into the body of the sermon and start working my way through the sacred text of Acts and the points that I want to surface from that text that I believe follow from the author's intent of the sections that we'll study, before we do that, allow me an introductory reflection for today's message and the week that is before us, as well as the cultural tensions that we face as believers living in a broken world that desperately needs even though they resist it and twist it, we desperately need the gospel of Jesus and the freedom that He alone offers fallen humanity. Speaking of freedom, this week in our nation we celebrate Independence Day, a.k.a. the 4th of July. It is a federal holiday that commemorates the Declaration of Independence, which was ratified by the Second Continental Congress on July 4th, 1776, establishing the United States of America by formally and politically declaring the 13 colonies were no longer subject to the monarch of Britain, King George III. I, I've, I have unfortunately, in the last few years, because of my work in academia uh, in the UK, I've found myself on a few Fourth of Julys stuck in England. And it's always anticlimactic, because you're like, oh, I'm in the land of the oppressors, you know? And you're just looking around like, and no one, you know, no one cares as far as July, so you're trying to find some Americans to do something. 1776, you know, freed from the man, King George III. And, and thereafter, the, the people were united and free and, and independent in these uh, 13 states. Now, or with this in mind, uh, and also with something more personal in mind for our church that I'll say uh, more about later, but with, it, with, with in mind with the holiday for us, I entitled today's message for God and Kingdom. This title is a play on the ancient Latin phrase, pro Deo et patria, which we popularly say in our culture, for God and country, uh, which is one that you might hear uttered uh, on July 4th, for God and country. It is one that you might hear uttered throughout the year. It's the title of books, articles, songs. Uh, for those of you who are into country music, if you like that sort of a thing, I'll be careful cr cracking country music jokes, I always get in trouble, but Dolly Parton had an album for God and Country. For those of you who are into different genres, Smashing Pumpkins had a song for God and for Country. Along with songs, it's, uh, it continues today popularly in organizations. For example, the motto of the U.S. Army, Army Chaplain Corps is Pro Deo et Patria. Again, for God and for Country. It's a popular saying. Another organizational example would be the Boy Scouts of America, who had a program called God and Country. Uh, they had a program, God and Country. They also used to be Boy Scouts. Uh, remember those days? In recent years, the PR campaign has dropped the use of the word boy, and now they go by Scouts BSA, uh, which though I am not the prophet or the son of one, I, I bet this is going to go down the way the YMCA did, uh, who today is known as the Y. You know, we, they're not known as the C Christian or the men's anymore. They're just the Y. Again, not a prophet, but I bet the B in the BSA will drop in time. It functionally already, already has. Uh, as in recent years, the Boy Scouts have welcomed girls and all sorts of other labels can join in the Boy Scouts. Uh, they have a problem with the B when it's used of a biological boy, but not when it is used uh, in context of other sorts of Bs, uh, you know, in terms of the L and the G and the B coming after that one. I was on the Boy Scouts website just last night and noticed that they proudly announced, and I quote, welcome all eligible youth regardless of gender or orientation. Uh, this is not the Boy Scouts that, you know, my grandpa grew up with. Well, I am all for, of course, people being welcoming and tolerant. It's entirely another thing when subversively the terms of tolerance and the principle of welcoming have been redefined to cast dispersion on those who believe in things like boys and girls and gender and objective reality, even further to rip away freedoms from boys' hands and call those boys haters for just trying to be boys who just want to have the very thing that secularists are supposed to be all about, you know, those safe spaces. What about safe spaces for boys? What about safe spaces for free speech? Uh, what about the freedom that we celebrate in July 4th? But you see, those safe spaces have been uh, given limited seating. 
that discriminate against those who in God's common graces can see the madness of the secular crowds. That said, we are living in troubling times, to say the least, where not only boys uh, can't be boys, but we don't even know what boys or girls or men or women are anymore, according to the priests of secular culture. In reality, we do know, but like members of a brainwashed cult, we have been told to check our brains at the door, to drink the Kool-Aid, to be quiet or else. In the eyes of secular doctrine, science has been trumped by sentiment. Feelings are more important than facts. Basic biological realities like gender and social goods like family morality and virtue are all up for grabs. Uh, truth used to be what is objectively backed by reason and science, but now what is subjectively feeling good to the individual backed by that person's opinions and emotions, that's said to be true or my truth, you see. If you've lived long enough, and you can be honest with yourself, you have no doubt experienced that your own opinions and emotions can lead you astray and get you into trouble. And this is where the danger is in our current contemporary context in the West. Indeed, this is why we are in troubling times, because we have been rationalizing a way of life that traps people into slavery to sin and dependence to the devil. With Independence Day before us this week, we can further see the troubling tides as the concept of independence and intentions of the founders of this nation have been radicalized into relativism and rugged individualism that seeks its own good and defines its own truth. That said, the founders certainly didn't get everything right. This is the original sin of, of slavery that I have in mind. When we think about our founding, it's not all pristine. Uh, we, we have to deal with the skeletons in the closet, specifically uh, slavery. It has, been, it has been called the original sin of this nation, and I think that is fitting. Uh, further, it gave birth to subsequent fruits of racism and white supremacy. The bloodiest war on the land of this soil was fought to end the, the, to end the hegemony of slavery. In September 1862, President Abraham Lincoln a slave owner himself announced the Emancipation Proclamation. It would go into effect, sadly not in 1862, but on January 1, 1863. And there on January 1, 1863, there was supposed to be a freedom to slaves. Long story short, slavery didn't end in 1863. Several states and uh, several uh, counties kept it going. They kept slavery going. And even where it was uh, illegal, the rise of the Jim Crow created a functional sort of slavery that maintained a great deal of slave-like conditions for black Americans. In fact, for many in the black American community, uh, this week, uh, the 4th of July comes with a, a bit of mixed emotions. Um, and, and, and as a result, in our national calendar, we have another day that is often commemorated, particularly in the black community and those who are concerned and, and, and want to give homage and think about this issue of slavery with the holiday known as Juneteenth. Juneteenth, June 19th, Juneteenth has sadly been soiled in recent years by our bipolarized cancel culture. You got the hyper-woke on one side and the anti-woke on one side who weaponize whatever they can grab to attack the other side and confuse those in between. Meanwhile, the devil is working the divide and conquering. The beauty of a day when God's common graces broke through the devil's dividing darkness, June 19, 1865, when Mayor General Gordon Granger and his Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, a full two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. They took control of the state and local powers to ensure that all enslaved people made in the image of God would be freed. Imagine that, two years after. I mean, there's no social media. You know, you don't have the communication flow that we have today. You have people living in slavery who didn't know about the Emancipation Proclamation. And you have to bring in federal troops uh, to put the kibosh on it. Interestingly enough, in 1865, uh, right after this, Christians, Christian churches, celebrated what was known as Jubilee Day. Later, it took on uh, the, the title of Juneteenth, and it is considered the longest-running black American holiday. We have church celebrations of this that go back to 1866. So long before it was commercialized, 
long before it got turned into a thing for bi bipolarized cancel culture to start chopping each other up. It was a thing that Christians celebrated. Um, uh, now, of course, all of our Christian holidays end up getting commercialized in our culture. You know, we've got, you know, people who think Santa Claus was born at Christmas. People think, you know, Easter's about, uh, you know, Easter bunnies and what have you. As the saying goes, people get funny when it comes to money. And our holidays get commercialized and the devil takes it and divides people and twists things. Well, anyway, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? Uh, Pastor Matt, you asked us to open to the book of Acts, and you're a Bible teacher. What does this have to do with the book of Acts? Well, in answer to this question, let me say this. It has a ton to do with the book of Acts. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about it by way of introduction. You see, the social context of the book of Acts, the social context of this book, written in the first century by the historical figure Luke, it, it is written in a context that mirrors our nation's history. Indeed, it mirrors the, 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 the histories and the cultures of, of all human uh, histories. Human history is marked, in this example, by human slavery. There is not a culture or a people in the ancient world that didn't practice slavery. Um, human history is marked by slavery. In the ancient world, everyone practiced it. In fact, it wasn't until the Christian church in the West rose up that abolitionism came into the world. A work that, mind you, needs to continue today as slavery still persists in the world. That said, many in the church today are continuing the work of abolitionism, which is great. And we see God moving through his church, just as he did with the abolitionist movement, just as he did in the civil rights movement, and just as he did in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is our origins account. It is written in the first century after Jesus... Uh, uh, has, has passed the mantle to his disciples. We get to see the birth of the church and we get to see uh, basically the DNA of the church, what they cared about, what their mission was, what they were supposed to be doing. And I submit to you that the drifts that we see in our culture with regard to the church today, if we would just go back to the book of Acts and say, what, what were they doing? What was their purpose? What was their passion? What, what is their example that we can learn from? What was their world like? And what is our world like? And as we study those things, we see, wow, times haven't changed. They live in a world just like ours, a world that was full of slavery. The world of the first century that the book of Acts was written in was a, a, was a slave economy. It was a dark, dark world. And we see God moving through that world, through his church. And we see, we see an example there for us to follow. Uh, we, 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 we see that they were living for something that was beyond uh, their times. We see, we see a church that wasn't, uh, uh, you know, turning to the government or turning to the state for the solutions, but they were getting on bended knee and praying to their Savior and crying out with His gospel to change the world. I have in mind a verse, or actually two verses from the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews reminds us of something that the narratives of the book of Acts remind us of, and so I want to give this to you by way of introduction. The author of Hebrews tells us, if you look up here in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The author of the book of Hebrews is reminding the church where our hope and our power comes from, God and His kingdom. Hence the title of my message this morning. You see, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Amen. And His kingdom takes greater priority over all earthly kingdoms and countries. Hence the title of today's message, For God and Kingdom, Not For God and Country. Pro Deo et Regnum Eus. There is no other kingdom above God's kingdom. There is no other kingdom on par with God's kingdom. There is no other flag that flies next to His flag. And on a cultural note, this is what troubled me about last month, seeing our nation's flag flying next to a pride flag. You, you, you go, what, what is going on in the culture? You, you see, that flag represents uh, something. It represents... Uh, uh, more than an acknowledgement of past injustices to a particular community, which any injustice to any human made in God's Im image is reprehensible, 
Uh, there's more going on there, though. It represents a nationalistic agenda that flies against the very principles that built this nation. But alas, as Christians, it's not about our nation. Nations come, nations go, countries fall, countries are formed. There are Christians all around the world. We are an international uh, community. We are an international people. We are heirs of a kingdom yet to come, which the King of Kings, Jesus, will bring. Amen? So in light of our hope in Christ's coming and our heirship in His kingdom to come, we can, we, we, we can get our minds off of our culture and we can get our minds into the Word of God and say, Word of God, speak to me that I might live accordingly in this world in which you have placed me. That I, that I would place above all kingdoms and all priorities yours, O God. So back to things that are in common with our modern world and the ancient world in the book of Acts. The ancient world and our modern world are marked by, as I already noticed, slavery, racism, oppression, war, bloodshed, violence, corruption, sexual and gender confusion, anti-family forces, and more. And all of these societal ills are just symptoms of a spiritual infection that without treatment will end in death and beyond the grave of mortal men and fallen empires. All these societies and individuals that make them up will stand before God and face judgment. Look again at verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Matt, what is up with this introduction? I finally got my friend to come to church. <laughs> and you're talking about hell and being judged. And, you know, you're talking about this, the, the PC stuff we're not supposed to talk about. I, I you know, I, I myself, uh, I, got, I got a friend to come to church this morning, too. You know, it's like, oh, what do you, you might think I'm crazy or something. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, all this talk about God and judgment isn't something that we're making up. Uh, all, all, uh, you know, in terms of what is politically incorrect or whatever, that changes. Cultures change. What is politically incorrect one generation might not be politically correct in the next generation. But here's the fact of the matter. Truth doesn't change. Two plus two, it was four in my great-grandfather's generation. Two plus two was four in my grandfather's generation. Two plus two was four in my dad's generation. Two plus two was four in my generation. Two plus two will be four in my kids' generation and down to my grandkids, you get the idea. Truth doesn't change with time. We change. We change. But the fact of the matter is truth doesn't change. And so, I, you know, being politically correct isn't the goal of the human life. Being correct with God is the goal of human life because he is the arbiter of what is true and what is not. And I, I understand that people might think that that is narrow-minded or whatever, but at the end of the day, I want to ask, what's wrong with being narrow-minded? When you go to, you know, have surgery, for example, and say you're getting your knee operated on, and you're going under the anesthesia, right? And the doctor comes in and starts small talking with you, and, uh, hey, what's going on with your knee and whatever? And, you know, you start telling him, he goes, well, you know, knees are relative. I, I might just operate on your elbow, you know. You're like, take the gas off of me, get this guy out of here. I, I need someone who is very narrow-minded in their understanding of what a knee is. Likewise, when I get on an airplane, I don't need some pilot trying out some new truths, my truths. No, you need to get me up in the air and back down on the ground. What's so wrong with being narrow-minded? Truth is narrow. Two plus two is four. All other numbers are wrong. There is nothing wrong with being narrow-minded, but there is something wrong with being wrong. When you go to the doctor, and the doctor takes your, your blood and runs you through the gamut of tests and whatnot or whatever, you know, you, you know sometimes you don't want to hear what the doctor has to say. Let's say you go to the doctor and you're having some symptoms and some pain and whatnot, and it turns out that you have, a, a, you have cancer, right? And you go in to see the doctor, and the doctor's like, you know, talking to the nurse before you come in, you know, who am I to judge? You know, I don't want to make him feel bad or whatever, you know. You know, one person's cancer is another person's, you know, this or that, you know. And the nurse is like, well, you know, and sends the patient in. And the doctor just, you know, he doesn't want you to not like him. So the doctor's like, hey, how's it going? And he's got your chart to his chest or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, everything looks good. You know, you're doing great, you know. And if that doctor knows that you have cancer and doesn't tell you that news simply because he's worried about whether or not you will like him, 
or because you've judged him? Right? What kind of a doctor is that? A, a doctor has to bring the bad news. A, a doctor has to bring the truth of the matter so that they can help you. If you don't hear the bad news, then, then you can't hear the good news. The fact of the matter is Christians are all about the good news. This word gospel that we use, that's what it means. It means good news. The good news is that the God of creation who has made us, that we have all rebelled against, we've rebelled against the giver of life, and therefore this God has every right to take back life from us. And that's why 10 out of 10 people die. 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people sin. We've rebelled against the giver of life, and so life is being taken back from us. That's the punishment that fits the crime. But this God, here's the good news, this, this God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, this loving God has, has chosen, before the foundations of the world, the Father has chosen to send the Son into the world to, to become a part of this rebel human army that's, that's in conflict with God, to become a man and to die at the hands of men as an innocent sacrifice that would pay for the sins of his people. That's the good news that he freely gives to you. He pays a debt that you owe because you owe a debt that you could not pay. And so who is man to, to shake its fist at a preacher and say, well, that's not loving, or that's not kind, or that's not PC, or that's judgmental, any more than a person would say to their doctor, how dare you tell me I have cancer? Who do you think you are? I don't know. I was just bringing you the facts. I wasn't making them up. That's just the way that it is. On the contrary, you should be thankful and say, well, what can we do to remedy this situation? Well, you got cancer, and guess what? Here's the antidotes. Here's how we're going to treat this. We're going to give you honey and we're going to rub it on your ears. <laughs> you go, what? I, no, I don't need some weird, you know. No, you should try it. It's my truth. Get out of here. I need the real antidote, you see? Interestingly, in our culture, we have now this advent of what's called fat shaming. Uh, and there's a, you know, we have an obesity epidemic in, in America. And now all of a sudden, there's all sorts of PC forces that are, they're calling it weight stigma. Just Google if you want to just get your blood pressure up. Uh, you know, where doctors are now, they got their hands tied because they can't tell their patients, like, actually, your health problems are coming uh, because of your mouth problems. You're putting too much in the hole. So you need to stop and, you know, you know like, calm down with that. And it's like, you're fat shaming. You know, who are you to say that I'm, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know. Okay, you're fine. You're, you know, who am I to say, right? Well, if no one has the ability to say, at the end of the day, man is the one who is having the ability to say, and that's what got us in this predicament. When man said to God, I don't care about your way, I care about my way, and I'm going to do me. That brings us to the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 1. The historian writes... The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that means this is the second account. What is the first account? It's the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts were both written by the historian Luke to be a two-volume account that gives you the history of Jesus and then the history of Jesus' church. The first account I gave you, verse 1, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What did Jesus do and what did Jesus teach? He taught them about the God of Israel. He taught them about the Father who sent the Son. He taught them that He was the Son who is eternal with the Father who has come in human flesh. He taught them that He was Israel's Messiah. He taught them that He was God the Son in the flesh who was the Savior of the nations. He taught them that He lived an innocent life, as I said earlier, to pay a debt that they owed, a debt that they themselves could not pay. He, he taught them this and He showed them this. They watched Him die on the cross and bleed out for them. They ran, they scattered, they, and, and, and then He came and He got them risen from the dead. And with their jaws hanging out, he taught them again. This is, what, this is what I showed you. And he shows them all the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. And he, and he says, look, you get this. He opens their eyes. He opens their minds. He saves them from sin and from death. 
This historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, is, is more than a historical man of history. He's God, the Son of eternity in the flesh, who has come to rescue and ransom a people for himself. He dies for them. He disciples them. He trains them. And then he sends them out into the world, and he says, I'm sending you to go and do what I have modeled for you to make disciples. Look at verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up into heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, his disciples, that he was training them. To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The kingdom. The author of the Hebrews. The kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom that is to come. He taught his disciples, pray for the kingdom to come. There's a kingdom that he would bring to his people. The kingdom that is tied to the covenants to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to, and to David. A, a kingdom that would enter into the earth and renew and restore all things when the king comes. Behold, the king had come. And rather than conquering the tyrants of the earthly kingdoms, he came to suffer as a lamb and said, I will return and I will bring my kingdom. But in the meantime, in the in-between time, you need to do what I did, go and make disciples. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave for Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. They were wondering, understandably, about that unshakable kingdom and when it was going to come. He said, that's, that's not the epoch right now. That's not the time right now. There's the time right now is the Missio Dei, the mission of God through Christ's church. I'm going to send the Spirit. The church is going to be born. The church wasn't in existence up until that point. God had been working out His wondrous, His wondrous mercies and His graces through the program of Israel. And now He is mobilizing this people that are going to become His church. He says to His disciples, it's better that I go because I'm going to send another. The Spirit... Again, we worship one God, His Father, Son, and Spirit. So He ascends to heaven. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes. You can look at Acts chapter 2 if you turn the page when the day of Pentecost had come. Right? Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in terms of the book of Acts, if you want a simple breakdown of the book of Acts, it, it follows what you see here in verse 8. The Spirit is going to come. And here's, here, 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 look at verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Those, those three geographic places form the structure of the book of Acts. The witness in Jerusalem from Acts 1 into Acts 8. The witness in Judea and Samaria from Acts 8 into Acts 12. And the witness to the remotest parts of the earth from Acts 13 through Acts 28. These aren't just geographic dimensions, they're ethnic dimensions. It begins with the Jewish people, it spreads out to Semitic families, and then it goes into non-Semitic, unreached people groups, to the tribes of the world, the Gentiles, the nations. Now it's in this second section that I want to focus in this morning. Uh, I want to take us to look at the historical figure, Saul of Tarsus, who Christ opens his eyes and transforms him, and, and, and God pours his spirit into him. Shaul HaTarsi, Saul of Tarsus, is more popularly known by his Roman name, Paulus, or, or Paul. So the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus, interchangeably, it's the same guy. And God takes Paul, and he decides to use him to become a missionary to the Gentiles. And so Paul dominates that latter third part of uh, this, these tripartite sections of the book of Acts. Beginning with chapter 13, if we were reading the whole book in one sweep, you would see that the historian Luke switches his focus from Peter to Paul. And now I want to take you into this section. If you would turn to the 20th chapter in the book of Acts. 
And in a moment, I will surface our, our first point on today's outline after this extended introduction in terms of Independence Day and things going on in the culture and why I titled the message Forgotten for Kingdom and we got this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Earlier I shared with you I had something more personal than the 4th of July in terms of our title Forgotten for Kingdom. Uh, to quote myself, I said there, I have something more personal in mind for our church in regard to today's message. What I have in mind is that this Sunday is a special Sunday for us because it falls not just before a federal holiday, but it falls during a time when our culture, it falls during a time when our, when our, when our culture is all confused and everything and, you know, stuff is going on and whatever, but that, that's not really what I'm getting at. It, it falls on a Sunday for us as Delray Church when we have uh, our very own missionaries who are continuing on the work of the Apostle Paul to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Several years ago, we sent out a family from our church. Because of security reasons, we've uh, assigned a moniker to them, and we keep them off camera or whatever, but for, for many years as a church, we haven't seen them. This is, our, this is their first time back with us. This is, in fact, uh, last Sunday was their first Sunday with us, uh, we had a guest uh, speaker last week, Brad Buser. Uh, if you missed the message, I highly encourage you to, to, to listen to it online. We had Brad Buser come because it was our first Sunday with our missionaries back in town after years of not seeing them. Brad Buser reminded us in the message last week of the 3,000 people groups that have yet to be reached. Acts 1, Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. 2,000 years later, this mission is yet to be reached. Over 3,000 people groups that have yet to hear of Jesus in their language. Brad Buser shared with us a very exciting and moving video, and, and more importantly, shared with us from God's Word about this mission to the remotest parts of the earth. Brad Buser and his family left their church, and they studied a foreign language. They learned that foreign language to act as a lingua franca to go to a people that they couldn't speak to in English, and a people who had never heard of Jesus, and so they learned a language that they could use as a bridge to learn their language so that they could then share with them who Jesus was. They spent 20 years doing that. A people who had never heard about Jesus. And they gave their lives for this. And we watched a video of this. Lives being transformed, and, and, and you know, people hearing of Jesus, and new life and salvation coming. Well, that's exactly what we did as a church a few years back. And as crazy as COVID was and the politics in the last few years, I tell you what, that was a silver lining in it all. When people were moving out of California over politics and different things, we had a family in our church move, pack up everything into a couple of boxes, and go to a place where they could die for sharing Jesus. I tell you what, I've been sick all week. I got a fever this week. It was driving me crazy. What was driving me crazy about it wasn't so much that I was bedridden and stupid, annoying fever, but the thought that I would miss this Sunday was just overwhelming me. So this message is brought to you by albuterol, Advil, aspirin, and a Z-Pack. Uh, and the Holy Spirit. But I, I can't miss this Sunday. This is their last Sunday with us. This is their last Sunday with us. This, this is their last Sunday where we get to be with them and where I as a pastor in this church can remind us we are living the book of Acts. The book of Acts didn't end at the 28th chapter. It is still going. We have something this Sunday that is so encouraging. They've been gone for years. They're living in a place where if you're caught as a Christian proselytizing, it is illegal you could get thrown in jail, kicked out of the country. And yet they're giving their lives for this. They're learning a language that they do not know, only to take that language to go into a more hostile place to learn yet another language so that they could go to a people and they could share with them the good news of Jesus. You know, the skeptics will often say things like, well, if your God is so good, what about the people who've never heard of him? And to that I say, we're sending people. We are sending people to go there. I want to remove that excuse from the skeptic. Well, hey, skeptic, why don't you go then? If it's such an issue, why don't you sign up and go? There is a moment in this third section of the book of Acts where I've asked you to turn to the 20th chapter 
There's a moment in this 20th chapter that parallels what is happening for us this Sunday. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is on his third and final missionary journey. If you, you, you map out, if you've got a study Bible, or most Bibles will have maps in the back of it, you can see the missionary journeys of Paul. He's wrapping up his third missionary journey. He's wrapping up his, his work in Greece. His focus moves to strengthening churches and then returning to Jerusalem. In this section of Acts, Paul is making a check-in stop at the churches that, that he's touched, Macedonia, Achaia. He spends a season in Corinth. Notice, uh, we'll, we'll notice that he actually names some names in the 20th chapter in the 4th verse. If you draw your eyes to the 4th verse, you see he names some names. Sopater, Ar, 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 Arstachus, Segundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. He wants to see people. He wants, he wants to be with people. This, this is going to be his last Sunday with people, and he wants, he wants to see folks. He's getting in time with his people. You're like, oh my gosh, are we going to get out of church on time? You're just on your first point. Paul has a plan. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to run a little late, but you know, God is gracious, and you should be too. So here we go. Perhaps they were these guys that are listed out. Paul is using them very intentionally to cover ground. As our, as our missionaries know, when you come to town, you can't touch everybody. You want to spend time with everybody, but there's only so much you can do. And so you've got to use other people around you. You've know, you got to organize things. You've got to be intentional about that. Our missionaries have, done, have been doing that in the time that we get with them. We've been very intentional and very thankful for people in this church who has helped us put on various events and, and hosting so that we can get in that time. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He wants to see his Ephesian buddies. He was in Ephesus for three years. He's going to stop at Miletus and tell, tell the church there at Ephesus, the leaders specifically, that he wants to meet up with them. So he stops at Miletus, we see in the text. This is an ancient seaport, a famous Ionian Greek town on the coast of Asia Minor, a prosperous town. Draw your eyes at verse 13. But we, going ahead to ship, we set sail for Assos, Intending there to take Paul on board, so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. The use of we here is very fascinating. It is a very special thing. If you've got your own uh, Bible, you might even just want to circle the we here. Because it, it is, it, it is, it is a, a first-person plural. It's not I, it's we. So Luke, the author, is indicating that he's there at this point. He's, he's with Paul. He's like, I'm there, we. Uh, he... We, we saw some of the names of these other guys in verse 4, at least eight guys, and so now we know that, Paul, that Luke is there and Paul is there. He's get, getting in time, like, ministry is, is family. I, you know, we love each other. This is heavy stuff, and we want to get in time. That's been the hardest thing this, this week, being stuck with a dumb fever. I'm, I'm just missing time to be with our beloved missionaries. And, 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 and that's what life is as a Christian, to, to be with God's family. Verse 14, when he met us at Assos, we uh, took him on board. We went to Mytilene, sailing on from there. We arrived the following day opposite Chios. And then the next day, we crossed over to Samos. The following day, we went to Miletos. Okay, there's a lot that could be said about geography. Edit that. Let's move on. When missionaries come to town, though, one thing that we do want to note is... It's all about strategic locations. So Paul, as he comes to town, he's, he's strategically using uh, urban hubs and port cities where people can gather. So you gather in a place that's concentrated. I, I think in terms even of in a place like greater Los Angeles, we have we, LAX is right here. We've got ports here. People can connect here. It's a great place where God brings the nations. In fact, speaking of missions, greater Los Angeles has 17... Uh, of the most unreached people group communities in North America represented here. We have the largest population of Tehrani Persian Jews in North America, substantial populations of Arab Muslims, Gujarati Hindus, and, and down the line. God brings the nations here. We, we, we have nations coming here. But the Great Commission, it's exciting for us because we can reach people here, but the Great Commission is for us to go. So Paul goes but then Paul, as he cycles back, like, hey, this is family, this is church, I want to see people. We see in the text, verse 16, that Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. 
His heart is in Ephesus. He wants to see those people. He wants to spend time in Asia, but he's hurrying, verse 16, to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This brings us to the second point, Shavuot season. Shavuot is what the Hebrews used to talk about Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. If you want to know more about Shavuot or Pentecost, you can go online and listen to my Pentecost sermon this year. It'll give you more information about that. Um, but what's interesting here, just in terms of timing and what have you, Pentecost was 25 years ago at this point. So the Spirit was poured out 25 years earlier. The church was born. The Apostle Paul was swept up into this thing. He becomes a missionary who's carrying the mantle to go to the remotest parts of the earth. In that time, he goes to Ephesus. He spends three years in Ephesus pouring his heart out, the, the gospel and loving on people. I think of our beloved missionaries. It's, it's been about the time that he spent in Ephesus is about the time that our beloved missionaries have been gone. Uh, we, we watched our beloved missionaries literally, literally uh, you know, leave. But even before that, we watched them, you know, grow in the life of the church. They went from being active attenders to being members to joining our staff and Marlon being ordained as a pastor and a minister of the Word in this church. God used Marlon to feed us the Word of God. And here we are in a similar kind of planned port like Miletus, Los Angeles. And we know that our beloved missionaries have just a little bit of time with us. This is our last Sunday with them. There's a symbolic Shavuot that they are headed to, and our time is short. Third, we see the personal powwow. Indigenous peoples use the noun powwow to describe an intentional social gathering where there's a time of, of getting together, a time of fellowship, and a time of, of sharing important information. That's what goes on here in the text. Look at verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. You can see the geography here just in terms of where Ephesus and Miletus is. There's no doubt different ways that one could travel, but the distance by land or water from Miletus to Ephesus is around 45 to 50 miles of walking. You could break it up with some boating. It's uh, likely a four-day journey. I did some calculating of this on Google Maps and some scholarly biblical atlases and commentaries. The Apostle Paul, of course, wouldn't have to do this because he, he knew, he didn't need Google Maps, he knew the maps. Uh, just like you do. If I said, how long does it take to get to San Diego or San Francisco or Las Vegas? You kind of know that. Paul had to know his maps as well as he knew his Bible because both were key for spreading the gospel to the unreached and planting churches and making disciples. Speaking of planting churches, a key component of any given church is leadership. And so here in verse 17, we see that Paul is focused on leadership. We, 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 we have a very unique section in terms of the book of Acts because this is the one recorded oral message of the Apostle Paul speaking to church leaders. Now, if you want to find more messages of Paul talking to church leaders, you can go to his writings in the New Testament. But this is the one account of an oral communication with the Apostle Paul and leaders of churches. In verse 17, those leaders are said to be elders. In the original Greek, it is the word presbyteroi, or the singular presbytos. It is important for me to pause right here just to mention something about the phraseology of elders because there's a lot of confusion of this in our day. If you look up here, you see that I have three Greek terms. Poyumen, meaning pastor or shepherd. Presbytos, meaning elder, presbyter or overseer. And episkopos, which gets translated into English as bishop or overseer. Now there's confusion in churches today because... You'll, you'll see, no doubt, if you grew up in the church, or especially if you watch religious broadcasting, there are a lot of folks that run around talking about bishop, I'm the bishop, you know, and all sorts of church hierarchies, and there are bishops and archbishops and all this stuff, senior pastors and all this stuff. You go, where does that come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. The terms uh, poyumen, presbytos, and episkopos are used interchangeably inside of the Bible. For example, let me show you quickly, 1 Peter chapter 5, you can see, I exhort the presbytos among you, as your fellow presbytos, witnesses the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory to be revealed, poyumen, or pastor, the flock of God among you. There you see the, the pastor and the elder are used interchangeably. 
Uh, you'll, I see this in churches, it drives me crazy. They'll say, well, those are the elders, but that's the pastor. What sort of a false dichotomy is that? The Bible doesn't know anything about a difference between an elder and a pastor. It's the same thing. Poyumen and presbytos are interchangeable. This isn't just semantics, it's scripture. Pastors are elders, elders are pastors. Let me give you another example here in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, presbytos, in every city as I directed you, for the overseer, episkopos, must be a, a, above reproach as God's steward. It's the same position. It's the same position. So anybody running around talking about, I'm a bishop, and these pastors are under me, and under those pastors are the elders, and under those elders are the... You go, what kind of foolery is this? That is absent from the Bible. You got Acts 20 in front of you. Let me highlight it on the slide so you can see it in color. I told you what verse 17 says. Recall it says presbytos. Okay, now for sake of keeping your finger at verse 17, look at verse 28 here that I have highlighted, right? The Holy Spirit has made you episkopos to poiomenein, the church of God. Again, these terms are interchangeable. Overseer, pastor, elder, bishop, it's all one position. And while I want to be respectful to church tradition, different cultures, different histories, and what have you, I'm more important in being respectful to the Word of God. The plain teaching of the Word of God and the blueprint for New Testament churches is that they would be led by a group of guys called pastors, elders, bishops, overseers, whatever, it's the same thing. This isn't a new pattern. It was the model of the Jewish synagogue that Jesus trained his disciples in, which they themselves preached in and planted congregations out of. And Jesus warned in Matthew 23, verses 8 and 10, about those who seek titles for themselves. Father, Rabbi, or whatever. Jesus goes, get out of here with all that. And then in verses 11 and 12, Jesus told his followers, do not seek those titles. That's the trouble with a lot of churches today. you got a lot of titles and CEOs and personalities and all the rest. And the face of one man on the thing, you go, this is mimicking the world and not Christ's church. It troubles me. It troubles me to see the names of men on buildings, let alone on merch. What, what are we doing? Now, let me emphasize what I said a moment ago, that the New Testament pattern is a group. It's a group. It was never a one-man show. I'll, I'll put this up here on the slide so that you can see very clearly this pattern. Acts 11.30, Acts 14.23, Acts 15, 2, 15, 4, 15, 6, 15, 22 through 23, 16, 4, 20, 17, and 28, 21, 18, Philippians 1, 1, 1 Timothy 5, 6, Titus 1, 5, James 5.14, 1 Peter 5. I told you we're a Bible church. I'm going to point you to the scriptures. No apologies. This is what it says. The church that Jesus started, he grabbed a group of men. And that's not politically correct today. Oh my gosh. For sake of time, I'm not even going to get in what's going on with the SBC. But he grabbed a group of men, and he told those men, you're going to go into the world. You're going to be men, you're going to go into the world, and you're going to start churches. And in those churches, you're going to raise up men. They're going to be pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, shepherd, all the same thing. And those men are going to lead those congregations to the ends of the earth for the glory of Christ. They will die for him. They will live for him. They will sacrifice for him. And he is worthy of it. It's very countercultural. We, we resist celebrity culture. We, re, we resist American culture and, and, and its notions of success. Bodies in the building, fancy buildings, bucks right? CDs, merch, all that. We're not doing all that because that's not what we're here for. And Paul is concerned about what they're there for. And that brings us to the next section, Saul's sermon, and we've got to move fast. This message is special because, as I said, it's the only recorded oral message given by Paul to church leaders. Look at verse 18. When they had come to him, he said to them, so this is Paul's last time with them. It's our last time with our missionaries today. Uh, incidentally, at our four o'clock service, because it's unrecorded, our missionary Marlin is going to share his heart. And I bet, I bet, I bet 20 bucks is going to sound something like this. Hopefully I'm not stealing his message. Verse 18, you yourselves know, this is the last time with them. He says, you guys know from the first day that I set my foot in Asia, I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and trials and through the plots and through the opposition of this Jewish community he mentions. 
You know, verse 20, how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house. He's going to give them a message here. We know in the book of Acts that the church met in buildings, for example, in synagogues, in the hall of Tyrannus. But it didn't just stop with a gathering on Sundays. They also met in homes. I've been in your homes. You guys know that. He shares with them first about serving sincerely. This is a sub-point for Saul's sermon. First sub-point, serving sincerely. Verse 21, solemnly testifying to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about how he served them. A lot of people today, they're all about service projects, right? Let's go build water or houses or blood drive or whatever, and they're not about the proclamation of the gospel. Paul, Paul's service is both. He, he serves the people and he proclaims, declaring, teaching, testifying. Repentance, that's a word that people don't want to hear. To turn from a holy God whose wrath stands against you. To turn from that so that you would be saved. I heard it recently asked, do you know that it was God's mercy that woke you up this morning? Because His judgment should have killed you last night. That's a message we don't hear. Because the, you know, the lowercase g God of most American churches doesn't have wrath, he's not mad, he's just going to give you your best life now, and everything's okay, and come to him, and he's going to make everything better. That's not Paul's message. Paul preaches a message of repentance. Paul preaches a message that if you follow after him, it's actually going to get harder, as we're going to see in the text. Look at verse 22, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. It's going to get harder. Repentance. That's a hard message. The Christian life, it's a hard message. You say, but, but Pastor Matt, if we preach that message, no one's going to say yes to that. No, no one's going to want that. Who are you to say that? God changes lives by this message. The power of the gospel is just this. It's not our job to make people to say yes. It's just our job to share the news. On The Office, I was binge-watching because I had nothing to do. Michael Scott has this line where he says, I had a great time at prom, and no one said yes to that either. Uh, he went by himself, and he had a good time. It's not our job to get people to say yes. It's just our job to share the message, and we let the, the Spirit move. That brings us to the next point, Spirit sending, which we see in 22 and 23. Paul talks about the Spirit sending. And where is the Spirit sending him? Not into success, but into suffering. Brings us to point C, suffering solemnly. Verse 24, I do not consider my life an account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify you solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I am preaching the kingdom of God will no longer see my face. It's his last day with them. I testify to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I do not shrink to you declaring the whole purposes of God. Paul preaches the kingdom that cannot be shaken. He preaches the king of his kingdom who is coming. If you've been around this church long enough or listened to me preach, you know that I have no problem going after the so-called prosperity gospel. But my fear for biblically educated Christians in a church like ours and other churches like ours around this nation, I'm far less worried about the Joel Osteen's than I am about the American dreams. The so-called American dream, or at least the version of it that is peddled today, runs contrary to the great commission of Jesus. The American dream faces its comforts on your health and your wealth and your family and your education, and, and, and it gets believers derailed. Paul was no stranger to this. In 2 Timothy 4, he said, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The American dream is the doctrine of Damas. It is what you do for yourself. You build your career. The church is way down in terms of priorities. The gospel is way down in terms of priorities. Bringing people to repentance and faith is way down. There's all sorts of other materialistic forces and things that we give ourselves to. Paul speaks to that as well. He warns about the, the shady savages. Look at verse 28. Be on your guard for yourselves and the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come into you, not sparing the flock. Jesus warned of this, Matthew 7, 14. Look at this verse, right? He, he, he said, look, 
Beware of the false prophets. They come to you, what, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Sheep are docile herbivores. Docile herbivores. Wolves are carnivorous predators. There is no competition, right? Michael Vick wasn't, wasn't wrestling sheep and wolves. No one wanted to see that. I'm not making a statement. Don't go Peter on me. But, you know, right? It's not a thing. You know, a human's bite force is only 120 pounds per square inch. A large domestic dog is about 320 pounds per square inch. The bite of a wolf is 400 pounds of pressure per square inch. They snap bones. And yes, I wanted to figure out what the bite force of a sheep was, and I discovered that it was 0.8 pounds upward to 5 pounds. But again, there's no competition. There's no competition. A sheep against a wolf, there's no competition. But there is for shepherds, because humans hunt wolves. Humans hunt wolves. But they can only hunt what they can see. So Paul says, you better open up your eyes. Because this stuff in the culture, it's coming to the church. We saw that this past week. I don't know if you heard the story of Calvary Episcopal Church. Founded in 1860. No doubt it's, their founders are rolling in their graves, or rather in the heavenlies. Uh, if you didn't hear the story, uh, Calvary Episcopal Church uh, is promoting drag queen shows. Let me quote from the Reverend Lee Schaffer. I am proud and honored to be able to offer Drag Me to Church a gospel drag show at Calvary as a way of affirming our long-standing support of the LGBTQIA friends and to invite new friends to come to our beautiful space in a different way. There's no, there is no other way than Christ. There is no other way than repentance. Look at what Paul warns in verse 30. For among yourselves men will arise speaking perverse things, like drag me to church Sunday, to draw away disciples after them. Forces draw believers away from missions. Now again, my concern in a biblical church like ours or other biblical churches like ours across this nation isn't that we're going to fall into that. I'm more concerned that we're going to fall into comfort. We're going to fall into consumerism. We're going to fall into political forces that are going to take a greater priority over the gospel. We're going to fall into discouragement. We're going to fall into fatigue. We're going to fall into joylessness, lovelessness. We're going to grow cold. It doesn't happen overnight. It's going to be a slow drip effect. Verse 31, therefore be on alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each of you with tears. Paul here is giving a job description of pastors, which he lays out in scriptures, that we are to feed the word, that we guide people in biblical living, and that we are to protect the flock. Paul was concerned what would happen after he left. As one of the things that's been so moving the last few years after our missionaries left is being able to get online and, and just have FaceTime. And I tell you what, I tell you what, as much as we're concerned about how are you guys doing and how is your mission, you know what they're asking? How's Delray doing? How are you guys? Oh, wait, who left? Oh, what, what happened? Oh, how, how are you guys doing? Oh, wait, what? There is concern for us and what's going on here as we are for them. That's exactly what Paul, Paul's going on to die. And he's like, I'm just worried about you guys. How are you guys doing? Are you guys ready for the things that are going to come against you? Moving down with his message in verse 32 through 35, we see him showing service. We see themes of hardship here. Verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance and all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and the men who were with me and everything they showed you that by working hard in this manner, you would help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He speaks of the blessings of giving. No doubt a trip like what Paul was taking required lots of people to give. In our own church, just having missionaries in town, it requires lots of people to give. I think of all the gifts and uh, the, the, the money that's spent to be able to have get-togethers and, and food. Someone connected to our church wanted to remain anonymous, but actually you, you know, spent money to give them an Airbnb to stay in. We didn't have money for that. 
You've seen our budget. You see we're behind. And people are sacrificing, and they want to give, and they want to spend that. And Paul, Paul is saying, hey, we're working for this, and we're using all of this. We want to show service. We want to keep this going. Because look, the day is going to come when we are going to have our rest. But right now, we got work to do. That day, Revelation 14, 13 describes, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their work follows them. We got a lot of work to do. We'll rest later. And when we rest in the heavenlies, the work that we do in this life will carry on. We have an unshakable kingdom that is coming. Next, let me move you to pastoral pains. In the book of Acts, Luke records various messages by the Apostle Paul. This is a very unique one, as I've already noted, because it's Paul and it's his last time with them and he's pouring his heart out. Verse 36, when he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them and they all began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. It's a very emotionally charged scene. Uh, we had a Monday night gathering uh, with our missionaries, and, you know, we had a time of extended prayer. I, I found myself, you know, just uh, trying, to, trying to, you know, do the man thing and just push all the motions down just to get through praying. You know, you, you love people who, who love Christ, who are part of your church, who are sacrificing everything. Here they are weeping aloud, verse 37 says. It's a strong word in the Greek. It's a word that, that connotes physical, deep pain. In Luke chapter 2 verse 48, the term is used to speak of the pain that Joseph and Mary experienced when they were looking for Jesus when he was missing. In, 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 in Luke 16 24, that word is used for the rich man's torment in Hades. It's a deep kind of agony. I shared with you why we're talking about this today because one, we're living this today. We're living Acts 20 today as we're saying goodbye to missionaries that we love. And it was with a deepness that we do this. The final point on the outline is setting sail, and that's what they will do later this week as they will continue on with their mission, and that's what we see in Acts 21.1. He parted and they set sail. It ran straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and then to Patara, having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia. They went aboard and they set sail. Let me conclude. Acts 20, Paul... He's on mission in most parts of the earth. He's circling back and touching those that he loves. He's in town for the last time, as it turns out. And hopefully for our missionaries, this isn't the last time, but you, you never know. You never know. Our book club last month, we read through Gates of Splendor, a story of, of, of five missionary couples, and, and the men, they go, and they die. They die at the hands of those they want to reach. One of those men wrote in his journal, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Staying is the easy thing to do. Aside from selfish reasons, right? Paul had people that he loved there. He had people he loved there. Of course he'd want to stay there. When you think of, the, of American culture and today's megachurches, the, the church that Paul had in Ephesus was a megachurch. But he doesn't go to Ephesus. He goes to Miletus. He could have returned to Ephesus. Hey, Paul, hey, what? You know, had, had some T-shirts, some merch, sell some sermon CDs and whatever. You know, write a purpose-driven whatever. I mean, he was the man. He had a megachurch there. And he goes with a small group where he'll head to Jerusalem and then into Rome, where he will die for sake of the gospel. Jesus told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. We've sent out one couple to go to the unreached. We need to send more. Who will go next? It's a painful sacrifice for a church to send out people you love into a cold world. Our culture is, is cold and antagonistic. But the remotest parts of the, of the earth pale in comparison, far more dark, far more antagonistic. And the goal of missions, of course, as John Piper reminds us, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is the ultimate. And so we, 
with a mission, uh, with a message on missions this morning, it's appropriate that we end with worship, that we sing to our missionary God, that we come to the table of communion, that we give thanks to Him who has uh, placed us in a church like this, where we can study His Word and spend extended time in it, where we see people around us actually living this out and sacrificing to this end. We're going to come back later at four o'clock and we'll have our final night of worship with them and and we'll be able to have a moment where we can hear the word yet again. But let's respond to the word as it has been given. I invite you, I'm going to pray first, but to come to the communion table as we partake in the very pictures of the gospel, the body that was broken for us, the blood that was shed for us. These are not pictures, mere pictures. This is an invitation for you to come to him. He died for his people. He loves you. Repent, turn. He will set you free. And when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. As we celebrate independence this week, let's think about the ultimate independence that has been given in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the table that is before us. Receive these songs of worship as we close our service in song. As we spend time at the table for a few moments, we eat and we drink. Lord, that you would move among us by your spirit taking these pictures of the gospel and working through them to remind us of what you have accomplished for us. While we were yet sinners, your son died for us. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. And we often take that for granted. We deserved death last night, but you woke us up this morning and you brought us here to hear this good news. May your spirit break through and cause us to be changed by this good news. For your name's sake, amen.